we have a new free book for Human Action Podcast listeners, Dr. Guido Holzman's How Inflation Destroys Civilization. Learn how inflation isn't only making us poorer, it's harming our culture, mental well-being, and the moral foundations of civilization itself. Get your free copy today at mises.org slash HAPod free. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome, everyone, back to another episode of the Human Action Podcast. Today, I'm going to be doing a post-game analysis of the debate slash intense discussion that I had on Zero Hedge earlier this week as I'm recording. Uh... The specifics, the resolution was the fate of the U.S. dollar. That was the subject line. So it was me and Jim Rickards, author of Currency Wars and other items you may have seen, who were arguing that the dollar's days were numbered. On the other side, it was Brent Johnson, milkshake theory guy, if you're familiar with that, and Michael Every. I think he likes milkshakes, but he doesn't have a theory associated with them. And then the host was Adam Taggart, who was. Uh, did an excellent job of just keeping things moving. And I, I felt very comfortable. I told him afterwards with him at the helm, steering us through the choppy waters of the discussion. Okay. So let me uh, give a little bit of background on the, the specific resolution. I don't think I'm speaking out of school here. Originally we had been batting around, you know, we were arguing over email or not arguing, discussing over email about what's the actual resolution going to be once we knew who the, the teams were for this thing. And originally we were going to say that the dollar will no longer be the world's leading reserve currency by the year 2040. But then it was thought, you know, that's so far away. People aren't going to be as excited about that because it's not as relevant, you know, and, and also too, it to see which of our positions was closest to reality. If it's, you got to clock in a decade later to start seeing, Oh, who looks like who's going to be right. It's kind of not as, as relevant, right? So that was the thinking. So we we pushed it up to the year 2030 in that respect. Um, then also, you know, if you go and watch the debate, if you've already seen it at the time you're hearing me give these remarks, you can see the panelists, we were all pretty similar in our worldviews and where the disagreements came in was mostly a matter of timing. And so that was another part of the reason. In order to get the clash, we kind of had to dial it up. Okay, so with all that, I did say that, hey, I'm going to say this at the beginning, and I'm I mean, I'm going to reiterate it here. My position personally, I can't speak for Jim, but my position is not that by the year 2030, if you look, for example, at the a standard metric in this sort of discussion is the percentage among what's called foreign reserves, um, the, you know, looking at countries around the world and to see you know what what is the the thing that's held most so right now it's clearly the US dollar and i'm going to get to that statistic in a minute and show how that it's its edge has eroded over time but right now still clearly dollar is number 1 euros number 2 as you probably know so i am not predicting that by the year 2030 if we go look at that standard statistic there's going to exist some other single currency issued by another government that's going to have a higher percentage 
in terms of being held as part of reserves around the central banks around the world and that that number for that currency is going to be higher than what the percentage is for the U.S. dollar. That's not what I'm claiming. What I am claiming, though, is right now, if you say to people, what's, you know, what, what's the world's reserve currency, instead of giving a more appropriate answer, they say, well, actually, there's many currencies that are held as part of reserves, and the percentages are blah, 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 blah. People are going to say, oh, the dollar. The U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. And I want to say by 2030, I think more and more people, if you just said, what's the world's reserve currency, they would say there is no such thing. It used to be the dollar, but at this point, it wouldn't be correct to say the dollar is still the world's reserve currency, that no, it's too um, fractured, right? The, the, it's, it's a multi, we're moving into a multipolar world. And so this is analogous in case you've seen some of my talks or you know, interviews on podcasts and things about what I think of the U.S. empire. All right, so clearly the U.S., since the fall of the Soviet Union was the world's lone superpower. I think it is frittering away, squandering its status in that respect. And that at some point, no one's going to say the U S is the world's superpower. But I think before, you know, that, that happens, there's going to be a period where there will be no superpower. Okay, so that's that's what what I'm saying here as well. That it will be so in that sense, like in terms of military strength, economic strength, and so on, the strength of its currency, the distribution of holdings of its currency. I think these things are all linked, and that instead of it just being a oh, on a certain week falling in the year whatever twenty thirty seven, people are gonna wake up Monday morning and the U.S. is going to still be the world's leading superpower. And then by the end of that week on Friday, they're going to say, nope, it's China. That's not what's going to happen. There will be an intermediate period where it'll be just, a, again, a multipolar world. And there'll be different competing blocks that will unite on certain issues of common interests and not on others where they disagree. And you know, countries will have to form coalitions. I also think over time, multinational corporations are going to become more significant players on the world stage with the rise of AI and you know using robots to do more things that companies that have the most powerful AI systems or engines and that also can mass produce robots and things i think that's going to be a bigger factor going forward as well all right so that down the road and i, I don't want to put a date on it but just like how right now, if you're thinking in terms of like geopolitics around the world, strategic uh, considerations and so forth, that you might say, oh, there's there's China, and then oh, and India is getting more prominent, and da, da, da. but you might start including companies in that list of the players that you got to reckon with when you're getting ready to go ahead and do something as a as a government and announce your policy. You have to really take into account. You know what does this particular entity think, and what is this sort of organization, right? Because it wouldn't be a it wouldn't be a state, but it's something. Okay, so that's my overall view. Now let me in this episode unpack some of the stuff in the debate. What I'm offering here is not a substitute for going and watching the debate. It the, the debate itself lasted two hours, and then we had another 
hour-ish of fielding Q&A from the audience, from the, you know, the Zero Hedge premium subscribers who had the, the right to <laughs> um, send in questions for us to, to field. So obviously I'm not going to just give a point-by-point -point summary because that would take too long. So here what I want to do is zero in on what I think, no pun intended, some of the crucial issues were and just unpack them. And let me anticipate, last thing I'll say here is a sort of prefatory remark. We're, as we're going to see, there's a central claim that Brent Johnson was making. And I've encountered that too, like George Gammon, when he has me on his show one time, he brought up something that I think is, I don't know if it's literally the same point, but it's extremely similar having to do with, hey, even if these, this scenario starts unfolding the way guys like you, Murphy, you know, dollar bears, let's call us, uh, think, given the structure of the euro dollar market, the, the fact that there's all these uh, organizations outside the jurisdiction of the United States who uh, hold assets denominated in dollars and have liabilities denominated in U.S. dollars, given that there's this state of the world right now, and we can quibble about how did we get here and was it fair or unfair, was it voluntary or not, doesn't matter. It is what it is right now. And to unravel that system, so the argument from Brent for sure, and I believe also George Gammon goes, it just in terms of sheer accounting, it will necessarily lead to a rising U.S. dollar in the Forex markets. And so therefore, even if people wanted to do what you guys are predicting they want to do, the nature of the system right now would paradoxically or ironically make the dollar strengthen. So like, even if the foreigners wanted to dump their dollars in this act of doing, they would cause a short squeeze that would thereby strengthen it. Right. So I think that's what their claim is. And I, I need to hear more that because the way I'm picturing things, I can see a path from where we are right now to where the dollar is clearly not the world's reserve currency and there's nothing about the accounting or the existence of the current euro, euro dollar situation that would stand in the way of that. All right. So I'm, so in this episode right now, I'm going to spell that out. And then um, probably what will happen is I'll try to get Brent to come on the human action podcast and we can just flesh it out. But here, let me present my case so he can see this and then either say, Oh my gosh, <laughs> I need to go adjust my portfolio or he'll say, no, no, Bob, you're, you're missing the point and come on and tell me why, but it should be one of those two things. Okay. So let's go ahead now. And I think in terms of just framing the overall debate, why don't I play excerpts from each of the four participants in the very beginning, the moderator gave us a chance to give a, a quick summary of what our position was and so that's probably a good thing to do right now. And with that, gentlemen, let's begin. I'll give each of you the opportunity to make a brief opening statement to give viewers a sense of your starting position. And as a reminder to all, the focus of this debate is the fate of the U.S. dollar. And the specific resolution under discussion is the U.S. dollar will cease to be the leading world reserve currency by the year 2030. Yes or no? Now, let's start with Team Yes. Okay, Jim, you've got two minutes for your opening statement. Great. Uh just to begin, I think it's important to understand what we're not talking about. We have the proposition that the U.S. will cease to be the leading reserve currency. U.S. dollar 
will cease to be the leading reserve currency by the year 2030. But we're not talking about a situation where you go to bed at night, you wake up the next day, and that's the end of the dollar. It's not an instantaneous, catastrophic uh, uh, situation. It's much more gradual, much more erosion, almost like watching uh, something rust, and then eventually it falls apart. And uh, we have a, a live case, a real example of this. Go back to 1914, the spring of 1914. There was no question that the pound sterling was the leading reserve currency. The dollar had a role. Uh, we were on a gold standard at the time, but sterling was the leading reserve currency. Uh, and then, of course, we had the outbreak of World War I. Uh, a lot of countries, a lot of the belligerents, uh, suspended redemption of gold. They said, we've got to hang on to our gold. We're going to need that to win the war. Um, but there was an argument in, in London in the Exchequer about whether the UK should do that or not. Believe it or not, John Maynard Keynes was the leading voice saying, do not suspend convertibility to gold, because he said correctly that you're not going to win with gold, you're not going to win with money, you're going to win with credit. And by maintaining their credit worthiness, they were, uh, Jack Morgan in New York organized $100 million loans. That's back when uh, $100 million was a lot of money uh, for the UK and France, but nothing for Germany. And of course, with a lot of uh, human sacrifice and tragedy, they did win the war. But at the beginning, all the European belligerents sold all their assets in New York. They were selling stocks, bonds, real estate, converting it to dollars and then gold and shipping the gold back to Europe because they knew they would need it to fight the war. Um, but within a few months, that was August 1914, within a few months by November, the gold started to come back to the United States because they needed to buy armaments, weapons, clothing, food, energy, etc. So the U.S. ended up with an enormous inflow of gold for the rest of the world. That was the turning point. November 1914 was the beginning of the end of sterling. But it was a 22-year process. They had three devaluations. In the 20s, the dollar and the sterling were like a horse race. They were neck and neck as to who was the leader. But by the 30s, it was all over. The UK devalued in 1931, uh, de facto devalued in 1933, when the US devalued against gold. But since the UK was on a gold standard, they devalued in the 1936, the tripartite agreement. Um, World War II was sort of a timeout, obviously. But then 1944, the final nail in the coffin. So whether you want to take a, the 22-year period from 1914 to 1936 or make a 30-year period to 1944, either way, uh, that, was, uh, that was the end of sterling. But it took 20 or 30 years. The dollar is in the same process. You say, Jim, is it going to take 20 more years? No, it started in 2008, so we're pretty far along. So add 22 and you get to 2030. Okay, so you see there, James, again, my teammate in this debate giving a summary of what happened with Great Britain, that before World War I, it was clearly the dominant superpower in the world, the British Empire. And although, you know, the U.S., of course, had been gaining an economic strength and London was, was losing to New York City, um, you know, over, over time, so somebody may have predicted Oh, eventually the U.S. is going to displace Great Britain. But prior to World War I, on the eve of the war, still the U.K. was where it was at. And the pound sterling was the dominant world's reserve currency. And then as um, Jim pointed out, clearly that was squandered over time. Okay, so just giving a, in a, a case study, not going back to Rome or something, but fairly recent history showing this can happen, right? So just because you have a dominant currency that's the world's leading reserve currency, 
doesn't mean, oh, so you're locked in forever. No, obviously you can lose that. You can forfeit it. And so then for the rest of the debate, it's ironic that Jim and I were bringing up all sorts of particulars about why would it be that foreigners would want to wean themselves from being so concentrated in dollar holdings. And by the way, when we talk like that, I should be clear, it doesn't necessarily mean foreigners are holding $100 bills, even though many of them do, if, especially if they live in countries where their own currency is uh, subject to severe or even outright hyperinflation. Or if they're engaged in illicit activities, you might you know, be carrying around suitcases full of $100 bills. Uh, but that's not primarily what we mean when we talk about foreigners holding dollars. And we don't even necessarily mean that, oh, yeah, they have a checking account that's denominated in U.S. dollars. We, a lot of what, times what we mean are uh, debt instruments that are denominated in U.S. dollars. For example, U.S. treasuries. Okay, so if some foreign company or some foreign central bank has a billion dollars worth of U.S. treasuries, then you know we would say they're holding dollars, even though technically you might say, well, no, actually a treasury bill or bond is not the same thing as U.S. currency. Right, but in this discussion, the two often get linked together. Okay, just want to make that clarification. So as I was saying, Throughout this debate, Jim Rickards and I offered several different examples of things that would make someone other things equal as a foreigner want to reduce his or her uh, exposure to the U.S. dollar. Th you know, things like out of control mushrooming of U.S. government debt, um, the actions that the U.S. government has been taking vis-a-vis -vis Russia in terms of, you know, closing off their access to the SWIFT system. Of, that's like how payments get settled in terms of banking. Um, freezing and then possibly seizing Russian assets that are denominated in dollars that were held outside of, you know, Russia's jurisdiction, things like that, that just give pause. To people, right? So, like the Chinese, for example, might look at what the U.S. is doing vis-a-vis -vis Russia because of the, you know, ostensibly because of the war in Ukraine, and say, "Whoa, they're laying the groundwork here that if we do something they think we shouldn't be doing with respect to Taiwan, for example, wouldn't be shocking if five years from now, when they're in the midst of a huge fiscal crisis, U.S. authorities just start floating the idea of, you know, given that." China's flouting international law here and committing war crimes uh, with this illegal blockade of Taiwan or blah, blah, blah. Look at UN resolution, such and such. Maybe what we should do is, uh, you know, right now, you know, next, over the next six months, we have all of these interest and principal payments due to U.S. Treasury debt held by the Chinese. So we'll just go ahead and redirect that. You know, maybe they'll do like a an intermediate step and first just say we're going to keep it segregated in this account over here until China, you know, comes back to the table and rejoins us in the in the international world order. Whatever, but you can see how they could start saying stuff like that, and that gee, if if it allowed the U.S. government to skirt hundreds of billions of dollars of interest payments by. Uh, elevating this dispute they're having with the Chinese government 
maybe they would do that because, again, you say, well, why would they do that? Because we just said that would save them hundreds of billions of dollars. People often come up with reasons to do something that saves them hundreds of billions of dollars. Okay, so because of that, you could see how the Chinese authorities might say, let's, you know, when, and when we're considering what are we doing going forward, adding to our portfolios, maybe we want to reduce our exposure to the U.S. dollar. And th this isn't something that's hypothetical, depending on the time frames you look at, you know, the Chinese authorities already have backed off of what at one point was a rapid accumulation of U.S. dollar-denominated assets. Okay, so the irony is, for all the things that Jim and I brought up, Brent and Michael were like, yep, yep, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like what you've done here, yes, yes. They were in agreement with just about everything, as far as I can remember. And their only disagreement was, where are people going to go? And or for some of the particulars, like the debt, the fiscal irresponsibility of the U.S. authorities, they're saying, okay, but governments around the world are doing that too. So that's no, not a reason to ding the United States specifically. Okay, so why don't I now transition? I was next in the summary. Instead of me playing a clip of myself giving the summary, why don't I hear summarize what my summary was on the show? Uh, okay, my most important point for the purposes of this debate was the following. If you look at the official statistics of reserves held around the world, as of the year 2000, the U.S. dollar constituted 71% of the, you know, the basket of reserve currencies. The euro was 18%. Fast forward to the year 2022, the U.S. at that point only held 58%, or, or sorry, the U.S. dollar only constituted 58% of the reserves held by central banks. The euro had risen to 21%. Okay, so you can see what happened there. The U.S., dollars position shed 13 percentage points, 71% down to 58% over a 22-year stretch. And that wasn't, the, the 13 percentage points wasn't totally counterbalanced by the euro because the euro only went up by three percentage points from 18% to 21%. So the rest was smaller currencies that as of 2000, you know, were piddling and then by 2022 had increased not so much in terms of the absolute number of percentage points of the total, but relative to, you know, what their fraction or their share had been back in 2000 went up a lot in the intervening 22 years. But regardless of wh who made up the slack, the critical thing there is that the U.S. dollars portion of total reserve currencies held around the world dropped from 71% to 58% in that 22-year stretch. And so, you know, I think that's my, my main point is to say, if you just continued that trajectory in terms of, okay, they shed 13 percentage points over a 22-year stretch, and you just extended that, by the year 2036, the dollar's share would have fallen below 50%. Okay, so that doesn't mean 
as of 2036, there would exist a single other currency that would have a higher share than the dollar. Of course, that's not the claim, but I'm just saying if these trends continue by 2036, the dollar is now less than half of the total reserves held around the world in terms of currencies. Okay, so a lot of the arguments that Brent and Michael were bringing up if you just looked at them prima facie, would suggest that given that the dollar has such a dominant position right now, it can't it can't lose it even if it wanted to. And I'm saying that that argument, and if you know if it's that strong that you're taking it, clearly is false because the dollar already has dropped from 71 percent down to 58 percent just over the last 22 years, right? So. Obviously, the fact of the you know the euro dollar market and there's assets and liabilities and how are we going to unwind it and this and that and the U.S. military did it. None of that stopped the dollar from going from seventy one percent down to fifty eight percent. So why, all of a sudden, would there be some qualitative roadblock that would prevent the dollar from slipping from fifty eight percent down to forty percent? Right, whatever reasons. Brent and Michael want to bring up for why that, oh, that can happen. Okay, but how, well, how come whatever they just said wasn't true from 2000 through 2022? And notice, too, there were two big crises in there, right? So part of what I think Brent's position is, and I believe Michael endorsed it, is that, oh, if this process, Bob, that you and Jim Rickards here are talking about ever got underway, there would be a massive financial crisis, and that makes the dollar strengthen. And right, and that did happen. We saw that in the 2008 crisis, and then also uh, during COVID. You know, people panic around the world. What do they do? They rush to safe assets, which right now are still considered, you know, U.S. Treasuries. And even with that mechanism in place, right, the dollar did strengthen against other currencies in 2008, 2009, which is partly why I think uh, guys like Peter Schiff who had expertly called the coming housing bubble, right? There's the the videos. If you go to YouTube, Peter Schiff was right. You can see some of those compilations. If you've never seen it, they're hilarious. Is, you know, 2006, 2007, Peter Schiff was going on various, like CNBC shows and things like that, debating people. And he was saying, no, the U.S. is in the midst of this housing bubble that now is starting to deflate, depending on when, you know, what the timing was of the interview. And he was just going through and saying a bunch of stuff that was spot on. And the other people, in some cases, literally laughing in his face about how ridiculous, you know, his warnings about the housing market were. So he totally nailed all that. But some of the stuff he said about the dollar did not come true. And I think what happened is, um, yes, the, the fundamentals of the housing problem and other issues, structural issues with the U.S. economy – Peter was totally right about, but the crisis that he was, that he did predict or or part of it, you know, in other words, he, in his subsequent work, he said that, yeah, what we saw in 2008 was not the full blown crisis. There's still a lot of chickens coming home to roost, but even the taste that we saw in 2008 perversely or ironically led to people flooding to the, to treasuries as a safe asset, which other things equal strengthened the U S dollars standing in the foreign exchange markets vis-a-vis other currencies, right? Because if you're a foreigner and you want to buy U.S. treasuries, you need to first get U.S. dollars. So you got to exchange your currency for the U.S. dollar to then, you know, buy the treasury so that you now have a claim on a greater number of future dollars. 
Okay, so the act of people rushing in the currency markets to exchange their domestic currency for U.S. dollars pushes up the price of U.S. dollars vis-a-vis those other currencies. Okay, so it was ironic that the crisis of caused by Peter Schiff and I would agree loose U.S. monetary policy in the early 2000s that helped fuel along with you know the Community Reinvestment Act and all the other stuff. But the Fed, in our view, was definitely involved with loose money following the dot-com crash um, that inflated the housing bubble. And yet the crisis that that loose monetary policy unleashed or, or uh, built up then led to a strengthening of the dollar. Okay. My point now, though, is pull back, e- even with that mechanism in place. And again, you saw a similar thing in 2020 where people got were panicked for a bit and um, would rush to treasuries and things like that. Even so, from 2000 to 2022, the U.S. dollar shed 13 percentage points in terms of its composition and, you know, holdings of reserves around the world. So none of these particular mechanisms that Brent and Michael are identifying prevented that slide. So qualitatively, why would anything all of a sudden pop up that would prevent the dollar from falling down to 45% or 40% of the composition of reserve balances around the world? Okay. So that's my, I think, single strongest point and I never really heard them address that in the debate directly to say like, oh, yeah, Bob, you know, the stuff you're talking about, it's understandable why it could have gone from 71 to 58. But clearly, you know, there's an inflection point and blah, blah, blah. And that's why it can never go below 52 percent. They never said anything like that as far as I can remember. OK, another quick thing I said was that. To illustrate or, or to just make sure people understand how bad the U.S. fiscal position is right now. Because this is the kind of thing I can remember back when I first got into this kind of stuff. I was uh, an unusual lad. I think, you know, junior high, certainly by the time I was in high school, I was doing stuff like going to the library and getting the statistical abstract of the United States and going in looking up what were the revenues during the Reagan administration to see what happened when they cut tax rates with the Kemp Roth tax cuts and so on and see, is it true that Reagan, you know, cut taxes and that's what caused the deficit and da, da, da. So I can remember back then there were all these deficit hawk types that would periodically warn about, oh, the looming entitlement crisis. And pretty soon, you know, social security is going to be underfunded and, or, you know, we're, we're going to have this mismatch. That's, that's a ticking time bomb as the workers get older and start retiring in the, there's not an influx of, of new workers coming in to uh, replace the baby boomers and the percentage of or, or the number of workers supporting a retiree. That's going to keep shrinking over t- 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 all this kind of stuff, right? And those warnings are now manifesting themselves, right? The stuff that I remember for decades, people saying this stuff is coming if we don't change course. Well, they didn't change course and now we're already here. All right, so it's already the case that the amount of money collected from workers' paycheck payroll taxes uh, is not covering the outgoing payments to the beneficiaries. 
of Social Security and Medicare. Right, So that's already the case. And then the issue is just, well, there's a so-called Social Security trust fund that's now being whittled away. Right, that That's the, the idea. Whereas, again, I can remember for a long time when that condition was just something people were warning about, saying we're going to eventually get here where you know the, the annual cash flow is is negative with the social security program and then what are we going to do okay so let, let, you know let's tweak it now before we get that well we're already there okay but putting that stuff aside so when you see statistics referring to just standard measures of the US government's debt they typically do not include entitlement obligations right that's a separate thing Okay, so just to give you the latest official numbers, the CBO, Congressional Budget Office, recently, as I'm recording this, issued their latest update. And let me just give you some numbers here. So the federal debt held by the public in the year 2008, just for context, was 39%. By 2034, the CBO is projecting that it'll be up to 116% of GDP. So again, as recently as 2008, Uncle Sam's official debt, you know, I mean, like treasury debt, 39% of GDP. By 2034, it'll have risen to 116%. Another factoid from the latest CBO, the federal budget deficit, right? The annual mismatch, how much in one given year are they spending more than they're taking in in receipts? That, according to the CBO right now, this fiscal year is going to be about $1.6 trillion. And going forward, it will never be lower than that. It's good. They project it's going to go up for the next, I think, two years. Then it's going to fall again and then rise again permanently thereafter. But even when it comes back down like three years from now, it's not going to be lower than $1.6 trillion. Okay, so... Again, the the statement is, from this point forward, according to the CBO's latest projections, which, by the way, are very optimistic. They're not including like, oh, and then we think a bad recession is going to hit. No, they they just do a baseline forecasting, which makes sense given what their task is to just kind of say, hey, if everything just goes on autopilot from now on, this is what it looks like. If they were going to put in a business cycle, then that would be controversial. People would argue about the timing and then the depth and why did you assume that? So they don't do that. And the CBO standard baseline forecasts, they don't predict there's going to be a recession. And so I'm saying even with that, which you know helps the case to show there's not going to be some major crisis that's going to require more spending and less tax revenue, they're saying the federal budget deficit and their projections never falls below $1.6 trillion. Even though you might have thought, like you might have known, oh yeah, the deficit's been really high lately, but oh, that's probably still a hangover from COVID, right? And that, you know, once we just kind of get normal growth going and the supply chain stuff clears up, all right, presumably the deficit falls back down to more reasonable territory. No, this is the new normal. The deficit going forward is never going to be below $1.6 trillion. Again, that's the annual amount by which the government has to take on new debt just to cover its current spending. You might say, well, okay, but these numbers are so big, I don't even know what that means. As a share of the economy, the CBO's latest forecast says the federal budget deficit 
never falls below 5.2% of GDP. Okay, so from this point going forward, just standard growth and blah, 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 right? Again, not predicting any kind of recessions or things like that. The CBO is saying every year, at least 5.2% of the entire output of the whole economy for that year corresponds to how much the federal government is going to spend over and above what it takes in in taxes. So what's my point with all that? To show if you're foreigners and you're thinking of holding different types of assets in your portfolio and you see these kind of statistics, aren't you going to realize, yeah, this is unsustainable. We need to start taking steps to limit our exposure because clearly the U.S. authorities at some point are going to have to resort to the printing press, right? And so the MMT folks are like, oh, who cares? It's, you know, how, where are we going to come up with the money? How can we afford this stuff? It doesn't, we have a, a printing press. We're the world's reserve currency. Okay. And so if the way you're going to solve these fiscal imbalances is just by printing money, that's fine. You don't need to explicitly default on that outstanding treasury debt. But if you're just printing up money to be able to pay your obligations like that, as they fall due, that's clearly other things equal going to reduce the value of an individual U.S. dollar. And so for people who are trying to manage portfolios of assets, whether we're talking about private firms, you know, money management, uh, institutional money managers, things like that, or central banks, either way, you don't want to be holding something that plunges in value. And so again, seeing the fiscal position and how unsustainable it is. Because again, it's the US debt as a share of GDP was similar back at the end of World War II. Okay. It, it's we're gonna break through even that record high soon. Okay, according to the CBO, if if things continue along the current trajectory. So, but somebody might say this is not literally unprecedented. It was the, like that at the end of World War II, but there, there, there was that one one-off emergency. Whether you agree with the U.S. entry into World War II or not, or how they conducted themselves, put that aside for the moment. Just in terms of why did the U.S. government take on so much debt in the nineteen, in the you know early nineteen forties? Well, it was because of a fairly unusual set of circumstances. And those went away, and that's why the U.S. was able to outgrow the absolute level of its outstanding treasury debt, right? So the U.S. debt to GDP fell, you know, during the 1950s and I think 60s, not because they were literally running a bunch of budget surpluses, but rather because the U.S. economy was growing faster than the nominal level of the U.S. government debt. So the percentage fell, right? That can't happen so easily right now because there's not all these huge federal spending programs that we can just turn off the way the massive military spending of the 40s quickly shut off, you know, once the war was over. So that's, you know, the, the fundamental difference between the two situations. Okay, let me now just, in fairness, go ahead and play some excerpts from uh, what Brent and Michael said. 
first here, let me go ahead and play my favorite part of the debate. Going over to team no, let's start with Brent Johnson, developer, as he said, of the dollar milkshake theory. Yeah, well, first, I just want to say thanks for the invite to this event tonight. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. And I also want to thank the panelists because uh, about a little over 15 years ago in the middle of the global financial crisis, when I realized that my superiors on Wall Street didn't know what was happening and didn't know why it was happening, that I would have to figure all this stuff out for myself. And when I first started digging into this, one of the first things I came across was the Mises Institute and the Austrian School of Economics, which explained economics to me in a way that I had never uh, been exposed to before. And shortly after finding that, I found Bob Murphy. And I started reading your works, and I listened to a number of your presentations. And it really is a fundamental block of my understanding of free market economics. Um, so thank you for that. Okay. And then here, let me let Brent make some more substantive comments. You know, I, I'm a money manager. And so for me, in my business, if you get the timing wrong, you're wrong, period, full stop. Um, it's a little bit different than if you are an educator or a philosopher. And so to me, the, 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 anybody who has even a cursory understanding of financial history knows that fiat currencies die and global reserve currency holders lose it. So the fact that that always happens, that's not that valuable. What's really valuable is understanding the dynamics which surround it and the timing. If you get those two things right, then that's valuable. And so my position is pretty simple, and that is de-dollarization cannot happen without extreme economic volatility, and it probably cannot happen without military violence. And as a result, I think this de-dollarization theme, while popular, is unlikely to happen as quickly and efficiently and come to an end as soon as most people think. And the reason is, is because de-dollarization, while it sounds very simple, it's actually very complex. De-dollarization in a debt-based monetary system is the same thing as deleveraging. And when you deleverage a US dollar denominated system, the US dollar rises. And when the US dollar rises, it causes problems for the whole world. Um, the Euro dollar market, the whole world chose the dollar as their currency decades ago. The US didn't force it on them, they chose it. Now, they set the trap of their, they, they built their own prison, essentially. And the Euro dollar market has become so big and so opaque that it's this Gordian knot that I don't think can be unwound. I think the only way to get through it is like Alexander did and just blow it up, cut it in half. And I don't see any foreign leaders out there that are anywhere close to Alexander. And so I would just say that you know, the euro dollar market will reinforce the dollar as the global reserve currency if de-dollarization is attempted. If they somehow, if the people who are de-dollarizing somehow get through that euro dollar market volatility, U.S. monetary policy can be used to squash it. And if by some miracle, <laughs> these world leaders make it through those first two, the U.S. military will be there to back up the dollar. And I know that last part is not very popular, but it's a fact of life. And so I think the likelihood of the U.S. dollar losing the global reserve currency in the next six years, I think is extremely low. Okay. So as you see, Brent making the case that Look, the the deleveraging is what the issue is going to be here, and we'll I'll defer my response to that for a few moments here because that's going to be the central um, item that I'm going to pursue in this particular episode. But just to round it out, let's hear from Michael. Let him see what let's see what Michael has to say for himself. 
Um, I've lived and worked in nine different countries around the world over my life, uh, including in post-communist Russia when it was very chaotic, uh, and including in greater China, which gives you some insight into what we're talking about when we talk about de-dollarization. Um, at the same time, Rabobank are global experts in trade commodity finance, which is where you will see de-dollarization happening or not. You won't see that in the US, you'll see it abroad. Uh, and that combination of factors, I think, makes me relatively well-placed, alongside the work I've been doing looking at it anyway. But what I want to add to everything that Brent just said is this. If we're making the logical case that we're going to see de-dollarization, logically, we have to say what's going to replace it. Because you can't just say it will go away and all the money will go nowhere. It will go into something else. So what do we think might replace it? Well, will it be another fiat currency? Well, over the course of the evening, I'm going to answer, no, I don't think there's a single fiat currency that can do that. Will it be gold? I strongly uh, disavow that notion. I don't think that's realistic. And again, I hope we can discuss why. Could it be crypto with Bitcoin going through the roof at the moment? Again, I don't think so. And I hope we can unpack why later. Uh, or could it be some BRICS currency based on a basket of commodities, which is an idea being floated out there? Again, I've done a lot of work looking at this, and I simply don't think that's sustainable. So logically, whether you like it or not, and I'm not saying I do, if you can't put forward something that's going to replace it, then it's not likely to be replaced. Okay, so there you have it. So the two big things that I'm going to tackle in this are Brent saying look at given the euro dollar situation where there's assets and liabilities denominated in US dollars held outside of our borders even if the world wanted to de-dollarize it's going to result in a uh, series of events a chain reaction if you will such that the dollar is going to strengthen so what are you talking about guys they they this couldn't unwind even if they wanted it to and lead to the sort of scenario that you guys are talking about um, and then Michael saying, yep, we, we stipulate a lot of the stuff you guys are talking about here, like why in a vacuum, the dollar is not the best thing to hold, but if you're not going to hold the dollar, you're going to have to hold something else. Right. So you show me what right now is better than a dollar. Show me the government right now that has, uh, you know, deep financial markets, bond markets, blah, 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 and has a currency is very robust and that their authority, their fiscal authorities are, you know, running balanced budgets as far as the eye can see. You show me that country and I'll go invest in their currency right now, but it's slim pickings no matter where you look, right? That's his position. Okay. So I'll try to address that as well. Okay. One last thing here. Um, let me go ahead and play because there's a little bit of a dispute about the debt numbers and given here that we're on the human action podcast and there's a bunch of econ nerds listening, it might be worthwhile for me to address this issue. So here's, uh, James Rickards when he gets the, the floor again at a certain point soon after what I've just played for you guys, he actually quibbles with the debt numbers I used. So let's take a listen. Uh, as far as uh, um, Bob's point, Bob and I are on the same side of the debate. We agree on the importance of the debt-to-equity ratio, but there's an old saying, you're entitled to your opinion, you're not entitled to your own facts. You can tell Bob's a PhD economist because he's relying on the CBO, which produces <laughs> garbage, you know, ad nauseum. Okay. But, here, but here are the actual numbers. National debt today is $34.23 trillion. The GDP today is $27.4 trillion. 
little bit of fifth grade math that that uh, debt to equity ratio, or sorry, debt to GDP ratio is 125%. So that's what it is today. Um, in 1945, at the end of World War II, it was 120%. So we're right now at an all-time high, yeah. higher than it was in World War II. The, the thing about World War II is we actually won the war, with, along with our allies. We were a global hegemon, a global economic power, a global military power. Today, none of that is true. Uh, we, have, uh, we have the same debt-to-equity, uh, sorry, debt-to-GDP ratio, slightly higher, uh, with a military that's lost four wars in a row, uh, you know, the soldiers are supposed to wear dresses, I guess, when they fly their planes. Uh, no, the recruitment is crashed. Recruitment is crashed. Yeah, I, I and agree. by the way, the Russians have a hypersonic missile and we don't. So I'm not quite so sure about uh, U.S. military superiority. I spent a lot of time at the Pentagon. We can talk about that as well. But the key ratio, the key debt to GDP ratio is 90%. That's when the Keynesian multiplier goes from above one to below one. So when you're below 90%, yeah, you know, approximately, you borrow a dollar, you spend a dollar, you get more than a dollar of GDP. But we're on the same side. But when you go 90, well, but that's where the United States is. Okay, so the, the fundamental uh, difference here between those two sets of numbers, and I should have mentioned that in the debate, you know, when I started quoting those statistics from CBO, I just forgot to, is that those numbers that you see bandied about usually if, if the person doesn't say otherwise and it's coming from again official sources and jim is right certainly the way phd economists tend to talk about these figures what they're actually quoting is what's called uh the federal in this case the federal debt held by the public and that's the thing that you know that's what i had in mind for example when i was saying back in 2008 it was 39% and the CBO projects by 2034, it's going to be 116%. So as Jim says, he's right. Wait a minute. If you like, for example, if you go look at the the arguments over raising the debt ceiling and you look and see what right now is the outstanding amount of U.S. federal debt, at least that's subject to the debt ceiling statutes, that number divided by U.S. GDP is already over 100%. So what are you talking about? You know, what's... And again, the mismatch is the discrepancy. The reason for it is that the smaller numbers say federal debt held by the public. And so what, what, who else would hold it? They don't mean, by the way, you might think that, oh, so they're not counting like if some foreign central bank that they're not part of the, no, for the, for this conversation, for the, in this context, the public can include foreign central banks. What it's excluding is federal debt held by another arm of the u.s government so it's excluding intra-governmental debt so the big example here would be the so-called social security trust fund right that if you look at the u.s treasury and its outstanding obligations right that throughout time the u.s treasury has issued bonds you know held auctions to raise money to help cover that period's budget deficit. And so that means somebody on the outside of the U.S. Treasury is acquiring net liabilities of the Treasury, right? They're acquiring Treasury bonds or bills or notes. And one entity that has been doing that is the Social Security Administration, All right? Back like in the 80, in the, let's say, late 1980s, when on a, in a typical year, the Social Security Administration was taking in more revenue from 
payroll taxes than it had to pay out to Social Security benefit recipients, what was it doing with that surplus? It wasn't investing in Microsoft. It wasn't buying real estate in Australia. It wasn't buying gold. No, it was lending that money to the U.S. Treasury. It was accumulating U.S. Treasuries, and that was going in what is colloquially referred to as the Social Security Trust Fund, which got to be you know up to several trillion dollars. So, you know, if you think about it in terms of the accounting, it's like the U.S. Treasury owes a bunch of money to the Social Security Administration. And so for certain purposes, analysts will often just net that out and say, okay, that's not a net liability of the U.S. government. It's like one part of the U.S. government owes money to another part of the U.S. government. And so for consistency's sake, if you want to just look at the U.S. government as a consolidated entity and what are its obligations vis-a-vis the rest of the world, you wouldn't want to include that. Okay, so that's what the um, federal debt held by the public clause is isolating. Now, in case you think, oh, come on, Bob, that sounds kind of slippery. That's just the rhetorical way of minimizing what the outstanding debt is. You, you can say that. I'm not even saying you're wrong. But – just be consistent. So if in a different conversation, we were talking about social security and I said, you know, everybody's talking about social security being in trouble, but they still have, you know, a trillion plus in the, the trust fund. And so they can draw on that for a while to get them through this until they come up with, you know, long-term structural thing. I think a lot of you listening to this, if you heard me say that would say, or certainly if you saw somebody from the Biden administration on CNBC, talking like that, I think you would laugh and say, okay, yeah, the trust fund, you know what that is? That's just a pile of IOUs from the treasury. You know, that's like the scene in Dumb and Dumber when they're, you know, given the pieces of paper that's saying IOU and say, oh, you want, you want to hang on to that one. That one's a big one. All right. That's, that's ridiculous that the trust fund doesn't mean anything. That's just a, the U.S. government saying, oh, we're good for this. So if we're in the context of saying the U.S. government has unfunded liabilities, to say, no, they don't, because here is a note from the U.S. government saying, we promise we're going to get this back to you. That's what we're talking about, that they have obligations that they can't fund right now, right? So I'm not saying you would be wrong to have that response or reaction to someone touting the Social Security Trust Fund as this asset that the Social Security Administration can draw upon to get through their fiscal crunch, okay? But if you'd make that move, if you say the Social Security Trust Fund isn't really this asset, because come on, it's just you know a shell game. Okay, but then by consistency, you have to say the Treasury – if the Social Security Trust Fund isn't an asset of Social Security, well, then it's not a liability of the Treasury, right? What, you, what doesn't make sense would be to say that those trillions or whatever it is, the current number, we're going to count that as part of the outstanding Treasury debt. Is, a, is an indication of how irresponsible the Treasury has been and how much they owe, how deep in the red they are. But then when we look at the Social Security Administration in isolation, if you hold up the trust fund as their assets to show, oh, actually, Social Security hasn't been as profligate as you might think just looking at their annual cash flows. That No, because look, at they got these assets. That would be inconsistent. That Okay, that's all I'm saying. Another thing is later in the debate, Jim was referring to the Rogoff-Reinhardt analysis 
um, in in which they could, they they looked historically at a bunch of different countries and their debt loads and their economic performance and so forth, and they came out with what ended up being a controversial statement. And I'll in the show notes page link to the the papers if you guys want to go check it out. Um, saying that once a country gets above a a ninety percent debt to GDP ratio. Um, there's there's a tipping point, and then all of a sudden, that significantly in, you know is is a significant drag on their economic performance going forward. And so they they established that as a bright line. So again, there's controversy in that in terms of the way they did the data. And by the way, somebody did find an error in their Excel spreadsheet, but that's not the fundamental issue. Okay, so that somehow got uh, elevated in the uh, discussion among like on the econ blogs and whatever. And it ended up being like, Oh yeah. Rogoff and Reinhardt made a stupid Excel error in their formula. And therefore the results go out the window. They did have a mistake, but that's not the, 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 what the critics thought the problem was, was, was a, was a deeper issue, whether you agree with the critique or not. Okay. So I'm just mentioning that for the purposes right now here, I'm not going to get into what the issue was. I'll, again, I will link to a paper. If, the spelling that stuff out if you guys care. But my modest point right now is I am pretty confident. I'm not certain, but I'm pretty confident that if you said, okay, that 90% threshold bright line, does that refer, if you want to apply that to the United States and say, oh, is the U.S. above or below that critical tipping point that you would want to use the federal debt held by the public is the criterion of that. And part of the reason economists use that is depending on how governments around the world manage their finances, um, if some of them you know, don't – like, for example, let's say the Social Security Administration, instead of holding treasuries, had held something else, you know, that would affect things if they had, if they had held you know, bonds issued by corporations or something. Okay, so it, depending on how the different governments around the world run their books – to do an apples to apples comparison, a lot of economists think, yeah, the, this figure you want is federal or is debt held by the public, because that's really what we're trying to isolate when we say this consolidated entity, what are its obligations vis-a-vis outsiders? Okay, so that's why they want to do it. And so that's why I'm pretty sure the Rogoff Reinhardt analysis, when they say, oh, once you get above 90% of debt to GDP, you're in trouble, I think that what do you mean by debt? It would be debt held by the public. So if Jim Rickards here is chastising me saying, Bob, why were you using the CBO's numbers? You should be using this. And as we can see, we've already blown way past the 90%. I'm going to say, well, well, no, the 90% figure would be a higher number if you're using total gross federal debt, not federal debt held by the public. All right. Just to make that modest point. Okay. So. In the time I have remaining here, let me just spell out my responses on those two main lines of response that uh, Brent and Michael gave. So as far as Michael's point is to say, where else are you going to go? We, we um, This is my one uh, regret with a debate is that I think – Jim and I did have a a good response to that, 
but it never fully came just with all the going back and forth. And so, you know, it, it didn't fully come out. Okay. So let me hear, I'm not going to put words in Jim's mouth, but let me hear say what I think um, the response that is. So number one, as the group of economies that are outside the U.S. orbit grows, just their own internal commerce will be a reason that they won't need to be as dependent on the U.S. dollar system. Okay, so let's exaggerate. Suppose at some point in the far distant future, the U.S. economy is only 1% of global GDP. It would be weird if the dollar were still the world's reserve currency at that point and everyone said, well, yeah, because everyone's just so locked into it, network effects, and and where else are you going to go? You know, if if 99% of the world, again, I'm just totally exaggerating, suppose 99% of the world was just the Chinese economy and 0.9% was the U.S. and the other 0.1% was everybody else. I, I, that's not going to happen. I'm just making that up. But you can see in that kind of a world to say, clearly everyone's still going to be beholden to the U.S. dollar because it, it, no, that wouldn't make any sense. Okay, so more realistically now, instead of that crazy exaggeration I just engaged in to warm you up to the idea, the BRICS countries right now, no, sorry, just BRIC without the S. I just did the BRIC in this calculation. As of 2022, using the purchasing power parity metric of how do you evaluate different currencies with respect to each other, the BRIC nations, those four, were 31% of global GDP. The U.S. was only 16%. And if you want to say, okay, when was – people keep talking about, oh, at some point, you know, China maybe outstripped the U.S. economy. And if you use the PPP method of putting them on, on a standard footing – Chinese output passed the U.S. back in 2016. So that already happened. From that measure, the Chinese economy is already bigger than the U.S. Now, you can't trust the Chinese numbers as much as you. I, I get it. But I'm saying if we're trying to come up with some way of quantifying this stuff, you can make a plausible case that the U.S., that the Chinese economy already is the dominant in the world and the U.S. is second. Okay. In case you don't know this, the other way you would do it is just looking at market exchange rates, foreign exchange rates. Okay, so what's happening is GDP is denominated in each country's own currency. And then when you want to compare one country with another and say, who has the bigger economy? You have to know, well, how do we compare? You know, So to say the U.S. versus China, you need to know what's how much should output measured in U.S. dollars be compared with output measured in yuan so you need to know what's what's the rate to transform one currency into the other for that comparison so one obvious thing is to look at the foreign exchange market to say oh if people are trading dollars for yuan what is it and on that metric the u.s is still the biggest economy but if instead you say okay but what if instead you want to look at like how many services can a dollar purchase for you domestically in the United States, like $100, how many haircuts and apples and hamburgers and car washes and da, 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 could you buy and come up with a basket of goods and then say, how many, you know, Juan would you need in China to get a similar basket of goods and services? And then you compare it that way. Then with that exchange rate in mind, 
they, which is more favorable to the Chinese currency, they do better, right? That's the idea. My point here being that as the countries that are outside of the U.S. empire's orbit, the people that have uh, ideological and strategic reasons to be wary of the U.S. and who other things equal would certainly like to reduce their uh, reliance upon or vulnerability to U.S. countermeasures involving the dollar is their economies collectively grow in the aggregate, outpacing the share of global GDP that the U.S. represents or even the U.S. and its close allies, that, again, that just kind of shows how over time it wouldn't be that hard for them to reduce their exposure to U.S. dollar assets and liabilities and flip over to their own internal economies, right? Just like U.S. investors right now in their portfolios, you know, big institutional money managers, they want to have diversification. So they probably got some exposure to euros and yen and this and that. They're not having a bunch of their portfolio concentrated in the currency of some little country somewhere. They just, why would they have that? Okay. And so likewise, if the U.S. starts out as the big boy on the block and then over time shrinks, then that's just what an obvious implication or an obvious reason that investors around the world and other central banks would reduce their reliance on um, the U.S. And you don't need to explain, like, well, where else are they going to go? Like, just even if they didn't put it this way, even if central banks maintained the same number, like quoted in, in the units of the currencies, the same holdings in terms of dollars, and yen and euros and so forth. But if the dollar falls in the foreign exchange markets vis-a-vis those other currencies, then that would achieve the same outcome. Okay. Like the, the purchasing power of the, the dollar component of their reserves would shrink, even if they weren't literally reducing their holdings of dollars measured in dollars and increasing their holdings of euros measured in euros. Okay, so just just keep that in mind. Now, one element that we did not get into, and here, again, I don't know if this is, I got the sense, well, I don't know. Jim Rickards, in terms of when he was talking about, he, he stressed a lot about gold, so I don't know if he was trying to suggest that, um, the other like that he was considering gold to be a reserve currency, but in any event, what I am saying is, with the increased usage of blockchain technology and just more generally, um, you know, digital finance, that it's going to be a lot easier for central banks, but also, again, institutional money managers and even regular people, you know, wealthy individuals scattered around the world, when they want to diversify their portfolios, it's going to be easier for them to hold something that's a very safe asset besides U.S. treasuries or checking accounts literally denominated in U.S. dollars. All right. So, for example, you know how there's stable coins right now, things that are tied to particular currencies, the dollar being one of them, well, you're going to see 
other uh, tokenized real-world assets, including gold. Okay, so just like you can have stable coins that entitle you to the U.S. dollar, and so that's a way that, hey, if you if you have the infrastructure and you like having crypto wallets and things like that, and you can have some Bitcoin and some Bitcoin Cash and your Ethereum and da-da-da, and you can also have USDC in there if you want, so that you're still holding digital tokens, but you're not completely throwing yourself at the mercy of the volatility of the underlying cryptocurrencies. You also have a sizable portion, you know, in cash, you might call it. All right. So you can do that, but as it becomes more popular, this different types of things like commodity baskets or just literally gold, you could have stable coins that are denominated not in U.S. dollars, but in ounces of gold, for example. And as lots of those different things pop up and they become more trustworthy and there's a bigger track record, things like that, you could see that proliferating. And so investors, so, so you know, when Michael asks in this debate, where are they going to go? You know, these other countries around the world, they don't have the deep bond markets and financial infrastructure and plumbing and did it. That if it if there are dozens of stable coins that have a growing with each year another year of track record under their belt to show that yes we have these assets we have physical gold stored in you know these locations around the world and what this digital token entitles you to upon redemption is you can have this delivered you know to the agent of your choosing and blah 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 and so if there's an easy way with instant settlement. You don't have to wait until the weekday to do your business that you can be moving large amounts of gold because the physical gold is still sitting in the vaults wherever it's stored. And what's being traded is on some blockchain somewhere, the digital tokens conveying ownership rights to that gold. I think over time when, again, Michael says, well, where are they going to go? If they want to get out of treasuries, they could go into gold or they could go into some basket of commodities, or they could go into all sorts of structured products. Okay, so now with some of the stuff, in fairness, you could say, well, if, if you're dumping your treasuries and instead you're going into Australian real estate, then that's not a reserve currency. That So that, you, okay, and I, you know, I don't want to get it boiled down into semantics here, but I think somebody who's, reducing their holdings of U.S. dollars and bulking up on actual gold that, you know, gold historically was the money. Gold, you know, gold was the world's money before the U.S. dollar was. And so I don't think I'm playing definitional games by saying they could go into gold. And it, again, I'm just saying for, for people who up till now could have plausibly quibbled and said, no, even though gold is cool, but there's a lot of problems with it that it's not as accessible and as fungible and blah, blah, blah as uh, a fiat currency issued by a government, that is no longer the case given, you know, modern blockchain technology and so forth. Okay. So that's just one thing I would point out. And, And again, I'm, I have some experience in this, again, working with my company Infinio, where we're taking life insurance and putting it on the blockchain I've been talking to the companies that are doing that sort of thing. And again, it's, as I mentioned in the zero hedge debate, if you went and saw that, it's household name investment banks that you've heard of, if you live in a household, that are 
taking real world assets and putting them on the blockchain. So even though right now it's still kind of a newfangled thing and the regulatory framework's getting pinned down and all that kind of stuff, I think by the year 2030, this is going to be pretty commonplace where there's lots of assets besides just the cryptocurrencies per se that live on the blockchain. Also, let me just say right now, I know there are Bitcoin maxis that hate people talking like that and you think we're rubes or we don't know what we're talking about or whatever. And I'm just going to disagree. That's, that's just like your opinion, man. Okay. But I don't, for the purposes of this episode of the human action podcast right now, I'm not going to get into that. Okay. Last big point I want to make here and I'll wrap up. Brent's claims that, you know, right now there's a, we have, we live in a debt-based system. And so de-dollarization for the people in Europe, for example, would involve, he claims, the destruction of a lot of assets. And so, because right now it's a lot of these foreigners, and he said it's a prison of their own making, that they decided to use dollar-denominated um assets slash liabilities in their transactions with each other. And so if some foreign company owes some other foreign company a million U.S. dollars that you you need to take, you need to reconcile or or, or reckon with that fact. Okay. And so when he's saying, how are we going to get from this current situation where so much of the world holds U.S. dollars because that's kind of the centerpiece of their economic infrastructure to get to a world where that's not the case that, you know, guys like you, Bob and Jim Rickards are talking about, you know, how do we get from here to there? And Brent is pointing out or claiming, I should say that part of that terrain that you're going to have to traverse involves a very painful deleveraging process that among other things he says would make the dollar strengthen. Okay. So let me go ahead and play the money, uh, pun intended, the money clip here that people were focusing on where it it looked like Brent really, you know, caught Jim. And, you know, a lot of people I've seen the Brent's fans on Twitter after the debate were circulating this particular clip to say, oh, this was it right here where, you know, team dollars going to be around for a while really showed that, you know, the other side didn't, was caught flat-footed. How does the rest of the world that owes 30 trillion, 50 trillion, depending on how you calculate on balance sheet or off balance sheet numbers, how do they lose $50 trillion in assets and not suffer? I never said they lose $50 trillion. I'm saying they will because they owe owe $50 trillion to each other. That's the euro dollar debt. Okay. They owe it to each other. They don't owe it to the United States. Right. So if that loses value, they're losing value in their assets. How does that not punish them? Punish whom? The holders of those bonds or those loans. It punishes the whole world. That's, uh, that's exactly. the second great so, 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 okay. So, and in that scenario, which direction does the dollar go versus other currencies? Uh, well, at that, point, at that point, you are talking about something closer to a dollar collapse. But in the, right, no, before it collapses, which way does it go? Right now, the dollar is getting stronger. Which way will it go if, the, if those loans collapse and they, there's a, they default on them? It, um, it goes higher, Jim. The dollar goes higher. In a dollar squeeze, in a credit contraction, the dollar goes higher. 
Well, you're not, you're not distinguishing between nominal and real terms. The dollar could be higher in real terms. Versus other currencies, well, which way does it go? Well, you get into a deflation. Versus other currencies, which way does it go? Well, the other, they're all in the same boat. Which I, I, way? No. <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's no world. Now, answer the question. There's no world where the dollar is you know, crashing and everyone says, hey, get me some euros. They're all going to crash together. Which way does the dollar go versus the euro and the yen and the yuan in the scenario? That well, why don't you ask the real question? Which way does the dollar go relative to gold? This is the we'll world get to of that. We'll no, get well, to I'll that. get to it right now. This is the world of $5,000 gold. In other words, it's impossible for every okay. currency to devalue against every other currency at the same time. That's the math. Which is exactly why the that's dollar will rise. Which is exactly why that's the dollar will rise. That's a mathematical impossibility. Okay, so the way I want to respond to this is. Um, I'm not even conceding that Brent is right, even in the scenario he's talking about. He may be, but my broader point is, my more fundamental response is to say that doesn't matter. Okay, and, and, I, and some of this was fleshed out more on Twitter. I posted the, you know, the clip I just played for you folks and asked for some further elaboration on it, saying, hey, I'm getting ready to do a video response for the Human Action Podcast, and I want to make sure I understand what the argument is. And Brent and others chimed in, and I still, I think we're talking past each other. So let me just go ahead and explain my deal right now. And then I, again, I'll, I'll try to get Brent even on this podcast if we can to, to flesh it out further. But where, what Brent, you know, his point is, he's saying, oh, if right now there's a bunch of Europeans, let's say, who owe billions of dollars worth of dollar liabilities, you know, to other Europeans. And so if you're going to make all that go away, that's going to involve massive defaults on those, li you know, those liabilities denominated in U.S. dollars. And so it's not just that, oh, we're free now from the shackles of the dollar because we owed all these dollars and now we're just going to walk away from that. Well, no, but that means all the recipients who thought they were going to get a bunch of U.S. dollars now don't. And so their assets melt away too. And so it's going to cause a lot of pain. All right. So I think, and then he, and he's saying in that scenario, guess what guys, the value of the U S dollar vis-a-vis -vis the Euro goes up. Okay. And I'm just trying to say, why does it involve a massive defaults? This is the process I'm talking about. Let me back up. Let's consider just the U S first. Right in the United States right now, there's lots of Americans with large credit card balances. Right, people owe a lot to Visa and American Express and whatever, and they're they're not paying off their balances. They're just rolling them over. I'm part of this elite club. Okay, I chose poorly. All right, so what if these Americans? start listening to somebody like Dave Ramsey who says, you guys have been irresponsible. You need to kick in the pants. You need to get out of debt. And they say, you know what, Dave, you're right. And over the next 36 months, American households on average pay down 50% of their outstanding credit card debt. Okay. Because, you know, they go out to eat less. They, when it's time for them to get a new car, they, they get a, a, a a more modest model than they originally would have because we're, we're, we're belt tightening. And like I say, over time, over three years, let's say they pay off half of their outstanding credit card balances. Okay. So again, American households knock out 50% of their credit card debt over three years. And 
I want to say, does that, what, what does that do? Does that mean there's a crisis and all of a sudden there's massive defaults? Can I say, oh, geez, yeah, the, the, the benefit is that the American households paid off their credit card debt, so their liabilities went down. But the flip side is all the credit card companies, now their assets just dropped down. So now there's massive problems in the U.S. economy and there's going to be crises and unemployment. No, why? Right? I, I don't. Why would that happen? They they can go ahead and, um, yes, the the credit card companies as they're getting paid off, and then people aren't running up new debts. They would have to invest in other assets, but they could go do that, right? Like in other words, as they have money coming in the door, paying down not only the finance charges but also the principal of their outstanding, you know, what customers owe them. And so their assets, from the credit card company's point of view, its assets are shrinking. That, oh, yeah, outstanding amount that our customers owe us is shrinking month to month because they, they're paying us back and they're not going to make new charges to, to keep it up. And, we you know, we can't bring in enough new customers who run up their bill and don't pay it off at the end of the month to, to funnel this cash that we have. They can go put it in something else. They can go buy U.S. stocks if they want. They can go buy gold. Okay? So there's nothing preventing that from happening. So if you understand that and how it's possible for people to pay down their debt without causing a crisis, now just change the scenario and say, okay, instead of it being people who, instead of thinking of it as credit card companies and American citizens all living in the United States, now just view it as, different companies who happen to live in Europe or be based in Europe or wherever, Dubai or Latin America. And there's nothing different about the story. Okay. So, yep, there's some company in wherever, Brazil, and they owe a million U.S. dollars to some other company in Brazil. And yep, that debt is an asset to the recipient. And the company that owes the money, they're selling their products and do whatever. They go in the foreign exchange markets and they get dollars and they go ahead and pay off their debt. There you go. You know, it comes due and, oh, we owe a million dollars in return of the principal. We've been paying the dividend, you know, the coupon payments all along. And now here's the return of the principal. There's a million dollars we owed you, U.S. And now the recipients of that million dollars in actual dollars, right, to satisfy the debt, normally, they would have just kept rolling that over. But now they don't because, you know, they watched the zero hedge debate and Jim Rickards and I scared the crap out of them. And they realized I don't want to be holding dollar denominated assets anymore. So now that I got paid off from my existing bond that I held that was denominated in U.S. dollars, and I have a million dollars sitting in my checking account with a bank that's, you know, denominated in U.S. dollars, I'm not going to use it to go buy a treasury or I'm not going to lend it to somebody else, you know, to one of my other companies in Brazil that needs U.S. dollars to go buy something with, you know, whatever they're doing with their U.S. dollars, why they wanted to borrow it in the first place. I'm not going to do that. I do not want to be owed U.S. dollars anymore. I want to reduce my exposure to that currency. And so now that I have a million U.S. dollars sitting in my checking account in Brazil, 
instead of again buying a treasury with it or lending it out to somebody else in exchange for you know a, an IOU that's denominated saying we promise to pay you 1.1 million US dollars next year or whatever I'm going to go buy euros with it or I'm going to buy who knows what something besides a dollar denominated asset you can you're allowed to do that people do that all the time right there's nothing <laughs> stopping you from doing that and so what would happen? You would take your U.S. Let's say you want to go buy you know, b- bonds issued, whatever, by the German government or something. Okay, so you go to the foreign exchange market with your million U.S. dollars and you swap them for euros. And then you go, you know, buy the German government bond instead. And so by you offering dollars for euros, the dollar falls and the euro strengthens. And then now that company, instead of having a million dollars worth of U.S. of assets on its books, that particular asset has been transformed into owing whatever the you know market rate equivalent is of a euro-denominated asset. Okay, no no defaults involved, no crisis, nothing that would strengthen the U.S. dollar. What's going? I, I don't. So I just explained how it could happen from the perspective of one individual company. Now, as on net, if more companies are doing that, then are thinking, you know, given the environment, I want to expand our exposure to the U.S. dollar as a currency. So let's go ahead and, and as we have our funds coming in and rolling over and we adjust our portfolio, let's let's move more into – have more treasuries. As long as on net, more com- companies and money managers and central banks – are deciding to reduce their exposure to treasuries than are wanting to expand it. That means on net, on planet Earth, the total exposure to the dollar goes down. There's no reason for massive defaults. Again, I'll come back to, I've told you, the start of this, the start of the zero hedge debate. From 2000 to 2022, the dollar lost 13 percentage points. There were some crises along the way, but I don't think it was people reducing their reliance on the dollar that caused those crises. Okay, so um, maybe I'm misunderstanding something, but the way I'm understanding what Brent's argument is, I just, he's, he's bringing up something that doesn't need to happen. He's saying if we had a bunch of massive defaults on dollar-denominated debt, then that would mean the dollar would strengthen. And, you know, whether that's true or not, you know, that sort of zinger he was like – the the point blank question he was asking Jim Records there. It it doesn't matter what the answer to that is, whether it's yes or no. I'm not I'm not saying he is right, but it doesn't matter. In order for the processes that Jim and I were talking about to unfold, there doesn't have to be a massive wave of defaults. It just means. Uh, I mean, think of it this way. Let's just say you were a regular bondholder of a company. And that the news was coming out and the company was doing things that you didn't agree with and you just got a little bit squeamish about it. And as the bonds came due, right, like, you know, you had lent the money, they had a five-year bond. And then as they paid that off, you just wouldn't roll it over and buy a new bond from that company. You would diversify into something else, right? So it doesn't mean that there'd be a massive wave of defaults for that company. It just means that even if it made all of its payments, 
if the public started getting nervous about the direction it was taking and wanted to get out of holding its debt, they would. And so what would happen in practice if the company needed to keep borrowing the same amount of money, it would have to offer a higher yield. And so what you would see in practice is that, oh yeah, the yield on that company's debt goes up as the public gets more concerned about default risk. But that could happen on the front end without there being a massive wave of defaults, right? That's, there's nothing. So anyway, I'll, I'll just wrap it up there because I, I don't even understand what the deleveraging thing has to, you know, why it's involving a massive wave of defaults that makes the dollar strengthen. And again, I'll just reiterate my point. You did see the dollar strengthen in 2008 and in 2020, I believe as well, because of the, you know, the scariness and the, oh, gee, everyone rushes to safe assets when there's a crisis. Even with that, from 2000 to 2022, the dollar should point. Let me put it to you this way. Even on its own terms, even if it were true that people wanting to reduce, that as foreigners around the world wanted to reduce their holdings of the U.S. dollar, even if it were true that that somehow made the dollar rise in exchange rate value against other currencies, that wouldn't prove that therefore uh, holdings in reserves around the world went up. Okay? So the, 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 the proposition, the thing we were debating was not to say by 2030, the market exchange rate, you know, how many yen does $1 fetch is going to go down. That's not what we were debating. It, 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 I think it probably would, you know, but I'm saying that's a separate issue. So even if Brent were right and that, oh, in the process of foreigners all trying to reduce their holdings of U.S. dollar assets, you would end up seeing the dollar rise against the euro and the yen and the, you know, from NIMBY and the ruble and blah, blah, blah. Even if he were right in saying that, I'm not saying he is, but even if he were, so what? What we were talking about was people reducing their holdings of the dollar. So that would be a countervailing force. But the idea being, let's say people around the world you know, wanted to, to drop their holdings of U.S. dollars a certain amount, and then the dollar ended up strengthening. If the proportion, you know, if their drop in demand was higher proportionally than how much the dollar rose, then multiplying the two together their real dollar holdings would still fall. That's that's the point I'm trying to get across here, this last point. And so, again, I'm just saying from all these different angles, Brent's point that a lot of his fans thought was the devastating moment of the debate, I think is a complete non sequitur. So if I'm misunderstanding what the argument is, I'm happy to be corrected. Obviously, I should just say this as a disclaimer. Brent and, you know, I mentioned George Gammon, I think earlier that he made a similar point. Um, they, they're more plugged into real world investment and international flows of money and things like that than I am as a, as a former academic economist and still one who's fairly theoretical, even though I'm in the financial sector now. But when, when I'm listening to them explain the logic of their argument, I just, it, it doesn't, I, I don't see it. So with that, I will wrap things up. Thanks for your attention, folks. I'll see you next time. 
check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.